G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today, an extra special episode of mine who I've known for probably six or seven years now, an absolute legend of the profession of occupational therapy, Dr. Charles Christensen came on, had a chat. It was absolutely crawling. I recorded this. I think we finished at about 2.30 in the morning, so I was up in the middle of the night. It was a very late night, uh, but I it just I couldn't shake my attention. It, he's a fascinating guy with a fascinating story. Um, if you don't know him, definitely have a listen. Check him out online. He's been the vice president of AOTA, I believe. He was the CEO of the American OT Foundation for quite a number of years uh have a listen check out his story uh i hope you get as much out of it uh as i did because uh he's still probably one of my favorite clinicians on the planet so enjoy how did ot find me well it's fairly um interesting in the sense that um, I had never heard of occupational therapy and I was taking a, um, a high school class in um, sort of a, 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 a literature slash philosophy course and I had a wonderful teacher who just assigned us with lots and lots of work and so one of our assignments was to um, think about what and think about our values what was important in our lives and what we enjoyed doing and then she asked us to um to to contemplate what how we would want to spend you know our working careers and how we would choose a vocation um that would uh, that would satisfy the majority of those, um, you know, values and, and, and interests. And, um, and so it just quite by coincidence, I happened to go to a, 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 a movie. Um, you call it the movies in, uh, in Australia or cinema or what's uh, your term for that? Yeah. Usually the movies. Yeah. Okay. So and and, a, and a, there was a there was a, a there was a picture uh, called Lilith that was um, playing at the time and it looked rather intriguing. I, I, I suppose I should say as a side note that my mother had designs on what I was going to be doing and she was um, was quite fond of the idea that I would go to medical school, but um, I was a very studious um, I think you'd say nerd. Uh, who sort of mingled with the, you know, the, you know, the nerdy uh, people in class. And, um, and so I was pretty, you know, by my last year of high school, I was fairly burned out with, um, you know, with studies and, and striving to achieve, you know, good marks and so forth. And so when I looked into medicine, I realized that, you know, that was another 10 year commitment after I graduated high school. And uh, that didn't appeal to me at all. You know, it seemed like an eternity. Um, At that point, I was, you know, barely, 
18 years old. And, and I was, I was thinking, gosh, um, that sounds like an awful long, long time to me. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I was kind of in the, in the mindset of wanting to, um, please my, my mother, especially, but, uh, but also to, um, you know, to do some things that maybe I was, that were, it didn't take as long and that I was more interested in. So I, I happened to see this movie and uh, it, was so, it was starring Warren Beatty, who was not a big star at that point, but later became, you know, a fairly uh, well-known movie uh, actor. And, um, and Warren Beatty played a male occupational therapist in this, uh, in this film. Oh, wow. It was uh, set in a private mental institution, really nice facility. And, um, and so he was, he was, uh, he had different patients, but one of the patients that he took a particular interest in, um, uh, was a woman who was a, a bit on the strange side at any, at any rate, the, I was just intrigued that there was such a thing as a, as a profession that allowed you to, um, occupy your time um, with different kinds of pursuits um, in sort of intriguing ways. And I was pretty interested in, in, in mental illness and mental health at that point as well. And, yep. and so there you have it. I mean, I, I thought, wow, this is great. And, um, and so you, could, you couldn't find very much information on occupational therapy and, and certainly no published material that I saw um, uh, said anything about males being such a small percentage of the population because i would never have even entertained the the notion of going into a a profession that had fewer males proportionally than nursing um yeah. you know i mean this was well before the enlightenment you know <laughs> that we that, that we enjoy today and um i really i i I wasn't confident enough. I wasn't socially confident enough and, and secure in my own masculinity to even entertain a notion like, um, I was afraid of, uh, harassment and, and, um, and, you know, all of the, 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 the put downs that would likely ensue yep. if people found out that I was going into a profession like that. So I showed up at my first class, fast forward, and walked in and I was the only male in the class. And I, I double checked the course number and the room thinking that I had walked into the wrong, the wrong location. And, and that was my begin. That was the beginning of my realization that I was in a, a field predominated by women. Yeah. I think that that was probably one of the reasons initially when I enjoyed it. <laughs> Yes, well, if I if I had had my you know my thinking cap on, I, I, I never really considered it from that kind of an angle, uh, because I didn't have enough social self confidence to really you know. I mean, I suppose that you know another way of sort of putting that would be so. so I my self worth wasn't really high at that point, yep. and um, it wasn't until. Um, you know, a couple of years later, after I had experienced success and so on and so forth, that I be began to you know build up my confidence. But um, yeah, yeah, 
but uh, it was in, it was intriguing, and I have never looked back. I never regretted for one instant that um, that um, you know I just happened on that. Um, I went to watch that movie and happened to be in a mindset where I was sort of curious about you know things to study and things to do, and um, and the timing couldn't have been better. Yeah. Um, so you know it worked out extremely well. That's. I've never heard of that movie, and I know. But one of the one of the things a lot of people, especially nowadays, are, are saying with regards to promoting the profession was why can't there be movies with more OTs in it? Oh, well, there you go. Mm-hmm. There's one. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have to say that um, you know, sort of looking, you know, it was it wasn't even in in color. I mean, it was a black and white film, uh, and um, which was quite you know, ordinary, quite typical at the time yep. uh, for, yep. for films to be in, in black and white. And, and um, <clears throat> so, and I don't think it received much fanfare. And, and it was a little complex from the standpoint of the, uh, you know, of the, of the plot. Yep. But that made it all the more intriguing to me because basically what happened was, you know, in the mental health realm and, and I, had intended really to, you know, to, to go into occupational therapy in and practice in mental health because, you know, probably the majority of, of therapists were, you know, practicing in that area. Yep. And, uh, and it turned out that this was, uh, there was a transference phenomenon going, going on between these two. And, and there's a, there's a term in psychiatry called the uh, folia do where, um, you know, the, the, the psychological needs and so on and so forth of, of both the therapist and the patient, um, sort of, um, conspired, if you will, you know, to create, um, a, a, a kind of a, you know, I suppose, a a relationship there that yep. certainly would be, would be contraindicated and, and not to mention unethical and, and, yeah, yep. and but it was a little, it was a little uh, pathological. <clears throat> Sounds interesting. I might have to track it down. Sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you can find it in there somewhere. Every once in a while, it it's one of these films and this the movies that appear on the late 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 show. Oh yeah, um, yep. <clears throat> yeah. I'll have to find it. Sounds interesting. It'll be worth checking out just to see how I guess OT was portrayed. You know, back mm-hmm, then as mm-hmm. well. Well, as I recall, he just—he was a veteran, and he just walked in off the street, and they hired him. So you know, I mean, that, right, right, uh, right from the get-go. I mean, it's a little bit <coughs> maybe here, yeah, not particularly you can true. Be an but, OT, yeah, yeah, exactly. So when yeah, you just walk, so yeah, that was a. So you went to school in in North Dakota. I did. I went to school in North Dakota. And when you graduated, you, did you stay in North Dakota or did you move or what, what, where did you first start working? Did you work in mental health when you finished? I did work at, I did work in mental health and there was such a need for therapists at that point that it was fairly easy to, um, uh, you know, to land um, stipends, you know, support from um, states and uh, that, you know, needed to recruit um, occupational therapists for the large um, state-run mental um, institutions that you know prevailed at the time. Uh, there were just you know every state had uh, had a you know a um, 
a, a, a mental hospital, yep. so to speak, or a sanitarium or whatever you, you know they happen to be called. Yep. And so the state of Michigan um, was recruiting therapists and, and looking for students in their last year who um, would be willing to accept a stipend in exchange for a commitment to work for a year or two once they, they graduated. So I, I was um, uh, putting myself through, um, through school and, and that was, I mean, it was wonderful to, to, you know, have that sort of agreement. So I, you know, not only did I have a job, but I had, you know, some cash. It's always good. (laughs) That's always good. Yeah. Uh, How we, how long were you there for? So, um, just to you know, just to add a little bit of uh, additional complexity to the situation, the uh, the the conflict in Vietnam that the United States was um, um, sadly engaged in at the time um, was going on, and we still had conscription, we still had a draft, and so one way that you could get a deferment from being uh, drafted into the military was to be enrolled in university. And so while I was, I knew that once I got out of university that I would, my deferment would end and I, uh, I could be, you know, drafted, you know, to go serve in in Vietnam. And so I ended up um, enrolling in, in a program that we call Reserve Officer Training Corps that they have at some state-supported universities. And, and that's fundamentally a place where they, they train reserve officers to serve in the military. Yep. And so I, reserve, I, I enrolled in um, what they call ROTC for short. And um, so I knew that if once I graduated, that if they did call me, then I would be commissioned as an officer, and and I would get to go serve as an occupational therapist. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm assuming that didn't happen. And so I was commissioned once I graduated, and and I I, I was able to go to Michigan, and I. I worked in adolescent mental health and um, and then about a year into my um, my time in Michigan, I got a letter in the mail and, and uh, it said, I've been called to active duty and I should report to uh, Scott Air Force Base, Illinois for my assignment, to begin my assignment. <clears throat> and so I, I went from mental health to a medical center, an Air Force medical center in Illinois, just outside of St. Louis. And I was assigned, of all things, to work in the pulmonary disease section, which uh, primarily was treating uh, people with tuberculosis at that point. And these were, these were soldiers and basically airmen, because this was an Air Force hospital that were yep. coming 
that were coming back from Southeast Asia where tuberculosis was still fairly prevalent. And, um, and so I had learned nothing in university because there wasn't any more tuberculosis to speak of in the United States. So that, you know, so yeah, they're not teaching it. There had, you know, once there had been many therapists that were working in, in tuberculosis sanitary, but, they had taken that from the curriculum. And so I didn't really know anything about, you know, tuberculosis or, you know, uh, you know, masking and gowning and and isolation and all of those, you know, factors that are so important to, so I, it was, it was a real lesson, you know, I mean, it was a real education for me. And, uh, but most of the, most of the care was of course psychological support and dealing with um you know what we now in occupational therapy know as occupational deprivation and um the occupational you know deprivation uh, uh, or disruption i suppose of of being in isolation and so many of it, it was fairly interesting because many of these patients were fighter pilots and you know they um you know they saw themselves as invincible yeah <laughs> and they certainly didn't want to be you know they just wanted to get better so that they could go drop bombs and um and so it was it was a, a real challenge to kind of engage them in something that you know sort of to try and um you know, work with them uh, to help help them sort of recognize that perhaps this was an opportunity in their lives where they could either uh, you know pursue something new or you know to to go more deeply into something that they they had an interest in. So yeah, yeah, uh, it was it was challenging. <clears throat> so they were. They sort of fight, trained as fighter pilots before, where they conscripted, uh, can't speak now, conscripted, and then decided to go down the fighter pilot route. Like, were they career fighter pilots? Pretty much. Um, most of the pilots came out of um, uh, the, the, the academies. Um, you know, the, the in the US, we have you know, military academies for all the services, um, except, you know, the newest is the cyber command, um, and the cyber command, I don't know, you know, if they're going to have an academy for, for people that really know how to do cyber warfare, I I suppose at some point, but, um, Mm. um, but this was, um, I mean, it's pretty intriguing thought when you think about it, but, uh, but no, most of these were graduates of the Air Force Academy, and um, just about everyone that graduates from the Air Force Academy, which is in Colorado, um, has as a required part of their, unless they they don't pass the physical, then, you know, they learn to fly. Yep. And uh, some of them who are the most proficient, you know, learn to fly, you know, fighter uh, fighters and, and things like that. And fighter bombers and um you know so they were you know in addition you know to being 
pilots. They, you know, in the, I suppose, you know, it can be said that in, in the military, you know, because, I mean, this naturally has a hierarchy, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, because of rank and so forth. But um, in the Air Force in particular, um, if you are, a, a, you know, if you fly, then you have more prestige than someone who just, you know, does a desk job or, or works on the ground, so to speak. And, um, and so they really considered themselves, um, you know, the elite of the elite and all very bright and uh, physically fit and so on and so forth. You know, I suppose what you, you could call macho and um, what they used to call macho. And, uh, and so, you know, they wouldn't, particularly in that era, they wouldn't even, I mean, in a, in a way it was, um, it was not manly, um, you know, to be, you know, doing any art or craft or anything with your hands or yeah, things yeah. Like that, anything creative. That just what that was not in their, in their playbook. <clears throat> so that made it particularly challenging for me trying to engage them exactly yeah i think uh with regards to the pilots i i think that's probably fairly much the same that sort of hierarchy uh <laughs> today because i know uh like my sister's in the army and having gone out with her and her friends and a few of the you know helicopter pilots and that kind of stuff that she knows <laughs> and uh, there's a definite uh, a different attitude, say, between the pilots and everyone else in the room. <laughs> they tend to mm-hmm. keep mm-hmm. to themselves and yeah, do their own thing. But yeah, I'd say well, that's and, and fairly I, similar. And, and, and I think the challenge is made even even more difficult because I still hadn't really. Um, develop my own level of self-confidence at the time to, yeah, yeah. Uh, to really even feel like I was worthy to be in their presence. I mean, maybe it wasn't quite that bad, but you know, I was intimidated by them. There's no question about that. Yep. And, uh, and, and approach, um, how one approaches that situation. I mean, sometimes, you know, if you, if you walk in with confidence and, um, and you know, you're, you're, you're going to command a different level of respect than if you are a little deferent and, um, you know, tentative about what you're doing. And, you know, if I had that to live over again, then, you know, there are a thousand things I would do differently, but, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why experience is so essential in becoming a, a master clinician. You know, you learn those things fundamentally on the job. Yeah, but I think, you know, if you hadn't learned those lessons then, then, you know, you might have not done or been involved in some of the things you'd done later on. So exactly, it all right. kind of happens for a reason and we, we all learn from you know, good, bad and different experience. So, so where did you go after that? Because I suspect you went back and did more study at some point. Well, from from my experience with the tuberculosis patients, I had an opportunity because I I still had a commitment to the Air Force to fulfill, and um, they approached me to see if I was interested in going to England and to serve at a at a regional hospital. Um, 
not too far from Cambridge. And of course, I, I jumped at the opportunity to do that. And, um, and so off I went to um, uh, England and um, worked at this smaller regional Air Force hospital where I was one of um, two or three therapists there who served, again, airmen, um, some pilots, not very many, but also lots of dependents, you know, families who were living over there with uh, service members. And, and this be, being a regional facility, I mean, there were people who came from um, really all over Europe, Iceland, um, United Kingdom, wherever, wherever there were uh, U.S. Um, forces that, you know, primarily air forces that were, you know, stationed over there. And, um, and that was fascinating because I, I was really forced into doing a, um, things that I really had never contemplated doing when I was in university. I mean, I never imagined myself. And even though I had to do, you know, required uh, clinicals in, uh, you know, what, what they called physical dysfunction at that time. Yep. Um, I, it, I didn't really imagine, I didn't see myself as working in that area. And so when I, when I got to England, I, I was, you know, given the opportunity to engage in lots of different kinds of therapy that I, I would otherwise have probably never, um, you know, been involved with. And it, it was, it ran the gamut from, um, the very beginning roles that occupational therapists had in um, working with, uh, you know, kids with uh, developmental disabilities and, and um, in, in, with learning disabilities in the school systems and so on and so forth. So this is the very, very beginning of occupational therapy in the schools. And um, so I got to stick my toe in in the water, uh, in that particular arena. And then, uh, you know, everything in between. So medical and surgical and some rehab, some mental health. I mean, it was a, it was a melange of, um, of different kinds of, of patients and, and what we called patients at that time. Yep. And, um, <clears throat> and, a, a fascinating experience. And it, and it really was quite wonderful for me because, um, maybe serendipitously, um, uh, a prominent therapist in the United States, Leela Lorenz, uh, came out with a, a theory um, of occupational therapy or a kind of a practice model that really helped me put all the, the, the disparate pieces that I had learned in university together into one kind of cohesive. I kind of saw how all of these, these, um, these, topics these courses kind of fit together it really gave me a, a kind of a mental model if you will to uh, put everything in, you know to relate everything uh to everything else yeah, you know, yeah it was my my first taste of of systems theory what i later came to to understand is as, as systems theory and um so it was it was a wonderful experience in that sense um, because I got to try things that I never really imagined that I might 
enjoy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and sort of put it all together, which um, made me think, hmm, uh, you know, where, where in occupational therapy can you, besides being at a small regional hospital in, you know, the, the United Kingdom, um, where can you have the opportunity to do all these to do all these things because I was really intrigued and interested in all of it. And, um, and right about that time, um, the military, the, the government in the United States was because they were having to recruit physicians primarily, um, and having a difficult time doing that. Um, they thought, well, why don't we just build our own medical school? So that was the birth of what they call in the United States now, the Uniform Services School of Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. Yep. And so they made a call out for people who might be interested in having any part of that teaching. And uh, in the meantime, while I was abroad, I had um, begun some graduate schooling in counseling psychology and um, was about ready to finish up my my master's degree. And so I, I got to thinking about this uh, university they were putting together. I thought, wow, that would be a real great opportunity to, um, you know, to kind of get in on the, on the ground level and, and be something that might be very interesting. I mean, it, um, they hadn't announced that they would, they would have any therapy programs at all, but yep. Um, so they they happened to have a program where they would send um, um, officers for uh, to earn their PhD, and so I thought, well, um, I was interested, kind of interested in teaching, and I was definitely interested in further graduate study, and so I I applied to this program. Yep, um, and um, and I, you know. In that day and age, you know, there was there was no digital communication, so everything was, you know, <clears throat> you know, done by paper. Snail mail. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, so everything, you know, took, you know, forever it seemed. And so <laughs> maybe three months later, I mean, the, the you know, the the pace, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, it's almost hard to even imagine now because of the, the speed of digital communication. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that you would make application and you you didn't expect to hear back for two or three months. I mean, that, you know, I mean that just sounds like an eternity now, but uh, that's what it was. And and word came back that I had my application had been approved, and I was. <clears throat> doing cartwheels with joy, um, thinking that, you know, this would be great. You know, I could, I could be a student, um, uh, still retain my commission in the, in the air force, uh, re receive my salary, all of my tuition and fees would be paid. And, um, and my job would be to earn my PhD. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. No, that's pretty sweet. And so um, there I was um, thinking, you know, that I, I couldn't wait to get started. And I was going in to fill out some paperwork uh, about, because um, you had to apply to different, you know, graduate programs and so on and so forth. And <clears throat> I was going in there and uh, to fill out this paperwork and I, I was, you know, putting down there all these PhD programs that I had applied to and, and uh, 
they said, um, oh, wait, there must be some misunderstanding here. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you haven't been approved for um, uh, doctoral study. You've, you've, only, you've been approved for a master's degree. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they were thinking advanced masters in occupational therapy. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've, I've just finished uh, a master's degree in counseling psychology, and I really would like to pursue my PhD. Well, long story short, um, they had not, you know, their view of occupational therapy wasn't, you know, wasn't such that they could even, you know, imagine why an occupational therapist would need to have a PhD. Yeah. <clears throat> so at that point, I had already made up my mind that that's what I wanted to do. And if the Air Force was not going to support me doing it, then I was just going to do it on my own. So I resigned my commission and uh, went back to the States and uh, began my doctoral studies so that I could prepare to, to get into teaching. And what was, your, what was your PhD around? What was your interest at that time? Well, it was it was in um, it was in you know health professions education. So um, you know my doctorate is in education, and it turns out that they had um, in Texas they had um, developed a program that was specifically geared toward taking people who were in health professions and. Um, bringing them up to speed on all the educational theory and so on and so forth, um, you know, to teach in higher education. So <clears throat> that's fundamentally um, what my concentration was. And, um, and you know, it actually worked out being um, a perfect opportunity for me because it, it fits so nicely with the, with the career you know, trajectory that I had in mind. Now, as I look back on it, I mean, uh, there are any number of fields that where I, I think I would have been happy as a clam to uh, pursue. Yep. Um, I probably would have done less teaching and probably more traditional, you know, research and science. I'm, I'm desperately interested in social psychology and anthropology and social sciences in general, you know, anything related to psychology, sociology, you know, human activity is um, something that I'm, you know, I can, I can spend enormous amounts of time doing and, and be in, in flow while I'm doing it. So, you know, it, I suppose there are any number of areas where I could have um, concentrated, but this worked out quite well. I think, I think that very much, that interest very much comes through in your uh, published works, or the ones that I've read, textbooks and, and whatnot. Uh, but I, I, I think that the profession itself is almost coming back around to that kind of stuff now. So it's almost, uh, oh, what the, I can't remember what the saying is, um, you know, what's old is new again kind of thing. It's, it's mm -hmm. almost like it's come back into fashion. So exactly. a lot of that um, sociology type work and and ideas and ways of thinking is very much the starting to anyway become the I guess the the fashion again in the in the profession mm -hmm. as far as well from what I've seen uh, in the last few years and I know it is 
it's definitely been that way for myself anyway it's it's that's yes. also uh, an interest area of, of mine is you know the i guess how some of the sociology type stuff fits with occupation and fits with the profession and how we can i guess use you know a, a readily established evidence base to boost ourselves up a bit as well oh yeah absolutely you know i can i can certainly see my my mother would smile if she were alive and, and perhaps she's listening in on this conversation and, and uh, if she is, I'm, I'm sure she will be smiling to hear that, you know, I've even contemplated from time to time um, that there are aspects of medicine that I think would be, you know, quite fascinating. Um, and certainly, you know, public health, epidemiology, I think both of those um, areas uh, are well suited to occupational therapists interested in you know pursuing advanced degrees i mean there's so much to, to learn about how you know what we do influences you know our health and well-being and and not just um at a superficial level but really understanding the you know the physiology the, the what we call the you know what's in the black box that explains why people who have meaning and purpose, you know, tend to be happier and healthier than, yeah. you know, than, than people that don't. And, and there are real answers to those questions in immunology and in hormone release and, um, you know, a whole lot of other areas where, you know, scientists are just beginning to kind of see the relationship between what we do and how that influences our health over time. You know, for such a long time, public health was, you know, if you, if you said public health, and, you know, people would be thinking about, well, you know, safety on the job, yep. uh, body mechanics, um, you know, stopping smoking, substance abuse. I mean, all the traditional, you know, uh, admonitions that are you know that are given to people when they're growing up about how to you know how to keep themselves healthy yeah yeah seat belt seat belt use yep. you know bicycle helmets and, and on and on backpack you know proper backpack use and so forth but um you know there's so much more um in epidemiology and public that I think is relevant to occupational therapy and its role in the community and keeping people healthy and at a population level that is just now beginning to be explored and um and so i see that as a whole new opportunity for occupational therapy in the future yeah it almost it, it almost feels compared to other professions how we that we've almost kind of done it ass about where we've <laughs> sort of done something seen that it's worked kept doing and then we've sort of had a look and found a bit of evidence to try and back it up whereas other professions seem to <laughs> uh kind of have done it the other way around where they've done the research found what works and then built the profession around that almost so uh, it's interesting at the moment especially like even like on a world scale with the like international classification of function and disease from the who and everything that uh-huh. it kind of is designing whole health systems around concepts that ot's are like dude that's what we do <laughs> there's, there's Absol- other absolutely. professions that are kind of recognizing that our way of viewing health at least um is is a really valuable contribution yeah i couldn't agree more i i i, I still remember quite 
vividly the the day that I uh, I first stumbled upon the ICF that had just been released by WHO. And I was looking at this um, and just pinching myself. I, I, I thought, this can't be. I mean, this is um, a manifesto for occupational therapy. I mean, if you really yeah. have a, you know, the, you know, a proper understanding of it. And I thought, this is this is really perfect. Now, you know, of course, the challenge is getting the rest of, um, you know, the, the health world, you know, to really appreciate, um, you know, the, the reality that, um, you know, the action is in social determinants of health and not in, you know, the reductionistic um, explanations yeah, yeah. of cellular function, you know, and, 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 and things you know, the, the whole enterprise was, um, you know, was organized around, um, you know, that, um, you know, way of, of kind of looking at things, the reductionistic ways of looking at things. And it's really difficult to change the, you know, the direction of the battleship, um, <clears throat> you know, sort of like turning around an ocean liner in a bathtub. I mean, it really <laughs> takes a long time and, you yeah, know, yeah. some of those those traditions and habits of thought uh, are very resistant to change. Yeah, it's almost it's it's almost uh, a generational change where you're not going to. There's a lot of you know generations of certain professions anyway that you're not going to change their mind. You're not going to get them to do it a different way. You're not going to get them to think. It's almost like we'll help more the 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 next generation of that profession coming through. Are more than happy to embrace you know that new way of thinking or that new way of looking at it, and we kind of just wait, wait until mm-hmm. they become the the dominant demographic of that profession, and you know, and then there's your change. Absolutely, I think OT is like that in a lot of ways too. There's a, there's a few things, a lot of the changes and um, the paradigm shifts that we've seen even in the last thirty years. Um, you know, with occupational science and that, and that sort of thing seem to be almost generational. Mm-hmm. They're almost a generational Well, I, you know, per, perhaps you um, in, in Australia um, have had the, you know, advantage. Well, you definitely have had the advantage of, of being, you know, greatly influenced by Anna Wilcock when she was alive mm. and um, and you know her extremely visionary thinking about these matters and and um, I think her influence certainly was global um, but uh, you know the fact that she you know was down under and and was quite you know um, prominent and notable in Australia. You know, I, I think perhaps gave you all a head start in terms of thinking about some of these concepts. Um, so, you know, as far as occupational science in the United States is concerned, uh, you know, I have um, some concerns um, writ large, um, small, you know, lowercase c, um, about um, the the status of occupational science in the United States, because at the beginning, um, when it was given such a boost by, you know, Florence Clark and Ruth Semke and, and, um, uh, Betty Yerksa, uh, Elizabeth Yerksa, yep. um, 
you know, it was the, it was the, 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 the shiniest, um, uh, bandwagon, new bandwagon to come down, you know, the street in quite, quite some time. And, and, and those individuals simply by the force of their own reputations, um, and energy were able to really gather a lot of attention. And so, um, you know, the, the whole idea of occupational science really kind of took root yep. rather, rather quickly. <clears throat> and of course it didn't hurt that it came from USC, which in, you know, university of Southern California, which, <clears throat> um, you know, I has, has 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 had such influence in the United States anyway, in, in terms of some of the seminal ideas and the mm. and the and the people who studied there, and um, and so you know it it really began to um, you know uh, to capture a lot of attention in the United States, and and um, even you know there were a number of academic programs that, that changed that you know the, their titles. Uh, from departments of occupational therapy to departments of occupational science and occupational therapy. And there was a real buy-in to this idea that, you know, you start with a science and then you apply yeah. that science. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> I mean, like, like most, um, you know, rational uh, enterprises, you know, proceed. But um, as, you, as you put it, we were doing it backwards. Uh, we were we were um, trying to slip the foundations. We in were underneath. tools. We were we were tools in in, in search of explanations, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> answers in, in and um, and so I think that, that there was a lot of, of resistance, you know, to that in, the, in, in from I think established practicing therapists who weren't really used to evidence based practice and and the expectations that would flow from those. I mean, it was quite sufficient. That experts, you know, um, who were authorities, um, you know, had said that that was so, and, and they were quite willing to accept that as a way of knowing. And then, of course, the tradition in, in the clinics is always really difficult, you know, to supersede. So it was a, a you know, it was quite remarkable that there that occupational science, you know, was so convincingly took hold at the very beginning. But yeah, you know, yeah. what was what we're seeing in the United States now, sadly, is um, I think an effort to um, maybe consider occupational science as really unnecessary, or certainly more of a, a kind of a quaint um, artifact of history rather than a, um, something that really needs to be taken seriously as a basis for practice. And, and a lot of that, I think, is driven by profit-motivated um, healthcare, where efficiency is the name of the game. And, yeah, yeah. and they're much more interested in, um, because the system is set up to reward, you know, uh, well, exactly, occasions of service. Yep. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a widget-based uh, system. And, um, you know, as opposed to an outcome-based system, I mean, it's gradually moving to outcomes, but it's going to take quite a while to do that. So what's and, uh, what's the alternative then? If if because I guess coming from like like you were saying before, like me coming from here, occupational science it it 
like it just is like that's the foundation like that's that's what we've built like that's all well, not what we've built the profession on but that's that's what's supporting the the profession so for uh, if people are i guess pushing back against that like what's what's the alternative what are they basing the profession on if they're not basing it in occupational science well i think that's a i think that's, that's the, the issue. key question that's the key question isn't yeah. it i mean you know, it's it's a it's a matter of well. <clears throat> so we have this approach that we're using, you know, in a in a in a clinic, um, in an occupational therapy facility, um, and um, and so we will just go ahead and s- study that, um, you know, to see if we can find some evidence that, you know, it makes a difference. That in fact it, it is evidence driven, and um, I'm I'm not you know it's it's a matter of sort of how one understands how science unfolds typically. Yep. You know, and it begins with you know hypotheses and theories that are tested you know systematically to you know to arrive at at some conclusions that are that are that are based on more than one study, one isolated study, and unfortunately the system now I think is is spending less time sort of thinking about thinking through, um, you know, the, the so-called levels of evidence, you know, how much confidence can you have in the outcome of a particular study? And, and, um, again, I mean, that's a very short-sighted profit, uh, motivated way of, of thinking about the, you know, the effective delivery of, of healthcare. And it certainly doesn't, place the emphasis on prevention in the majority of cases yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the only the only time that prevention seems to enter the picture is when you know the 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 the, the, the bean counters uh recognize that maybe there's a you know there's a there is some profitability in attending to you know keeping people that you know, have a tendency to fall and break their hips at older ages from, from falling. So, you know, there are some of those preventive theories that, that come into play, but they're not really always viewed as we would see, as we would advocate if we were advocating for what Betty Yerkeson called authentic occupational therapy. Yep. Because they fail to consider the context. Yeah, yeah. And the individual individuality of, of each client that, that comes into a clinic. And, and that can be really vitally important in, in a number of ways. <clears throat> Do you think, because this is something that I've thought about a little bit recently, because I don't, I, I can see, I can see how that would happen in OT, but I don't know if that's specifically an OT issue. I wonder whether it's a, like a research literacy issue that might even be a bit wider, like what you were describing before about OTs not really being able to or not being willing to, whichever it is, uh, I guess almost be critical with good evidence versus bad evidence kind of thing and just taking whatever on face value because we kind of, uh, I see a lot just in general society like, oh, I read it on the internet so it must be true kind of thing. I'm like, but you read it on some blog that some 18 year old probably just threw together and put online because they knew people would click on it and then they can sell ads like it's mm-hmm. not actual evidence or it was 
taken from a study that may have actually been published in a peer-reviewed journal, but it was taken that you've you've framed something that they've published as a correlation as causation kind of thing. Like, do you think it's a wider issue, or is it something that OT specifically is a like a trap that OT specifically is falling into? Well, you know, I think that's an intriguing question. Uh, you know, I would be inclined to think that um, it really depends on the on the context, and that sounds like a like a, kind of a bit of an evasive answer, <clears throat> and it's not intended to be at all. Because I think it really depends upon you know the 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 you know, the, the clinical judgment uh, and the experience of therapists because the therapist going, you know, uh, seeing a client for the first time and trying to get a, a sense of what the narrative is, what the, you know, who is this person? Um, what's their circumstance? What's important to them? What are their capabilities? What are we dealing with here? I mean, that's, those are, you know, those are, you know, those are, are, if you if you take the answers to those questions and you kind of consider them um, as part of a, a picture that's being or a portrait that's being painted of a client, <clears throat> you know you're you're going to get um, you're going to there's going to be intuition there's going to be clinical experience there's going to be a, a number of factors that that go into um, making some decisions about what's the right approach for this particular client at this particular time in their lives and. That's highly complex, highly sophisticated, and um, and uh, and does require. You know, I think it does include. Okay, what does the literature say? But mm. what's the what's the you know the how much faith can we put in the studies that have been done? Do they tend to support what our intuitions were, what our clinical experience was in the first place? And, um, and so one doesn't get too, um, how should we say, harnessed to whether or not a, a you know, a, a study exists, particularly if there hasn't been very much study on that, particularly if there's no contrary evidence to what, you know, prevailing practice has been. Yeah. Um, you know, I think as in, you know, in, in all aspects of healthcare, the, the first rule is, you know, first do no harm. So, <clears throat> you know, Joan Rogers um, once pointed out, and I had never really even thought about this until she pointed it out. And, and, and she asserted that, you know, with any given client, there are probably several approaches, several things that might be done with that. And, the problem with protocols, uh, which are, you know, I think designed not only to kind of keep, you know, for liability purposes, yeah, yeah. Uh, primarily uh, to, you know, to keep facilities out of the courts, um, <clears throat> but also they're, they're, they're done for efficiency and um, yep. because they're replicable. And, and so that's all well and good, but it takes away the reality that as Joan was, was, was asserting, of all of the things that could be done for this client, which is the one that is the absolute best thing to do for that client? Uh, and she, she said, you know, that is, 
an ethical question because we have an obligation to clients to to do the best that we can do for them we can do we have an obligation you know under the principle of beneficence to do uh what's what's right what's what's best and and i I always you know when i think about um clinical decision making i often wonder if if therapists take the time you know to really think about that ethical dimension um you know so it's so what's best as, as opposed to what's most efficient what's you know um i mean there you know other other factors that would would say well i really don't have the time or inclination to actually you know get this you know worry about what might be best i'll just do you know what's good enough yeah and 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 i suppose there's some you know there's some there's some justification in that and and, you know I, i often say you know in any problem solving situation where time might be a an important factor um you know the perfect is the enemy of the good (laughs) <laughs> so we're not we're not looking for we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for um, the the best good, if you pardon the expression, that we can find. And 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 those are all I think intriguing um, dimensions of of practice that probably haven't gotten enough you know scrutiny over the years. <clears throat> yeah, it's that uh, whole, that whole clinical you know that whole reasoning process. Yeah, <clears throat> I think. Uh, and I'm guilty of it as well. Like I, I, I think practice areas are still. I mean, yes, we have some specialty practice areas, but some practice areas are so broad too. Like I know, just if you're working in mental health, like you're gonna see if you see 15 people a day, that's 15 different different situations and different, uh, you know clinical interventions that you're going to be putting like if you were to search the literature and try and read up and learn about the absolute best thing to do in every situation that's the whole day done before you've actually even seen anyone so uh, i can definitely i guess relate to that in that way um i've just heard i've heard quite a few therapists sort of i guess refer to the time before occupational science and it's almost like well we managed to you know we managed then why can't we just do that now kind of thing and i'm like well yes but that's kind of negating the fact that it exists and the importance that it actually has and yes i get that there's other reasons you know time and you know whatever your work uh, constraints are with regards to actually engaging in it but it's always been one of those things where for me anyway it's like well something's better than nothing it's like you you work with a person who never exercises and they get up and they do five minutes i'm like well that's better than the five minutes that they never did so you know if you're engaging with the the evidence base then anything is better than what you're not doing kind of thing and and gradually over time you're gonna work your way through it and things are gonna change and new evidence is coming out and i think one of the we're kind of almost, I feel anyway, at a, a point as a profession where, you know, we've, we've come through an age where the evidence base was quite small 
And it was probably easy because it was easy for a lot of people to just go, well, there's nothing out there. And we're, we're at a point now where it's expanding and I think it's expanding quite rapidly to the point where the individual studies that are being put out, there probably is too many for people to digest them all. But then I think the next stage is we're going to start seeing, you know, meta-analysis of people's studies. And I think that's where our evidence base is going to really, I guess, almost concrete itself in. I think that's the stage where occupational science kind of needs to get to before people will really start, I was going to say, admitting its existence, but... In some people, it probably is that. But I, I, I kind of see it as it's almost like these are the growing pains of the profession still. Oh, no question. And and we're light years ahead of where we were even 10 years ago in terms of the bright young scholars and scientists who are asking questions. I mean, there's so many questions to be asked and addressed. Uh, you know, part of the issue becomes uh, so which ones you know, should we be prioritizing? Mm. But, um, you know, to your point about, yes, um, clinical practice worked perfectly well before, you know, the um, evidence-based practice movement came along. And that may be true. Um, but it is also true that um, some of the theories upon which those interventions were based uh, were just plain wrong. They've been shown to be wrong mm. um, as neuroscience is particularly neuroscience, you know, has, um, has, you know, gained traction and, and you can cite, uh, and I'm not, you know, picking on people because I mean, everyone is doing the best that they can do at that particular point. And mm. it's not really fair to use today's lens with, uh, you know, the level of understanding that existed at the time when, you know, people were, you know, doing things that we now regard as, is actually potentially harmful. Yeah. But if you, if you think about, you know, some of the theories that, um, that, uh, aging heirs who actually endeavored to, you know, to create theories and to, uh, kind of validate her, notions about sensory integration um and 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 some of her contemporaries uh margaret rood or you know carl and berta bobath i mean any of those people who had such influence in occupational and, and, and physiotherapy during those those years i mean they were you know they were um trying to base their interventions on not only their clinical experience, but the best science that was available at the time. Mm. And now, you know, as we've, as, as we've, you know, studied some of the, the assumptions and, and the conclusions that, that were the basis for those procedures, we understand that some of them were just plain wrong. Now, were they harmful? Probably not um could they have been harmful who really knows but the point of the issue is so people were you know so so client patients and clients were um were going through you know endless rounds of therapy that um that didn't really have any basis in in uh, in science 
and um, and 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 fees were being charged for that for that intervention. And yeah. again, that that you know there are. I think I think delicious around that as well. I'm yeah, not definitely. accusing anyone of, of purposely not doing the right thing. That's certainly not the case at all. Okay. But I think it, it is. And and of course the, the 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 great news is that we now have science and we can now reexamine some of these assumptions that were incorrect and we can we can correct them and and we can you know, we can begin um, with some novel, um, innovative um, interventions um, using, in in some cases, wonderful technologies like, you know, virtual reality and, you know, all of the, you know, the, the wearable um, biometric devices that can give us real-time feedback on what's actually occurring in the body. So, uh, you know, who knows? The sky's the limit, I think, going forward in terms of of the application of, of these technologies to um, uh, to what's going on. So um, anyway, so yeah, it's hindsight's a wonderful thing, um, and and the, but the trick is so we have to be aware of um, you know we have to be aware of history and we have to learn from it and and apply it going forward and try to avoid. Uh, as best we can, the mistakes of the past. Because I know history is a, 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 I guess, a, a, or history of the profession anyway, is a fairly strong interest for you. Is that is that the reason why, or you're just a history buff in general? Or uh, well, you know, it's fascinating. I think there must be a, a gene that switches on at a certain age. <laughs> you know, when we when we get to the you know the point in our lives where you know, we know that, um, uh, you know, we've already lived most of our lives and, and, um, and, and we sort of reflect back on what has happened, how we got to where we, where we are, you know, there's, there is a sort of, you know, intriguing kind of hindsight there that I think a lot of people go through, you know, where they're, they're reminiscing, they're reflecting, they're trying to make sense of it all. <clears throat> And, um, and so I think that's, it's kind of a natural part of aging, but in, in my case, um, for years and years, I had a mentor by the name of Bob Bing, Robert Bing, who achieved some, um, uh, notoriety in the United States as a president of the national organization and, as a as a scholar, primarily a historian, he was very very interested in history. And <clears throat> excuse me, he had um, he had been interested in history for quite some time, and uh, uh, he was, you know, I think one of these people who gathered. Um, you know, history books and collected history books like, um, you know, any collector would do. And, and he was a voracious reader and, and he was quite fascinated by occupational uh, therapy history. So I had an opportunity to, you know, to um, learn a great deal from him. But yeah. I have to confess that I wasn't really that interested in history at the time. I found it 
I didn't really see its relevance. And, um, and so I, I, when I should have been enjoying these conversations, I was sort of politely suffering through them <laughs> and, and wish now that I had been more attentive and more appreciative and had asked more questions because, uh, Bob, as I knew him, um, Actually, as he was doing in graduate school, working on his doctorate, he he, um, he he had gone to university at the University of Maryland. And so he was out in the Baltimore, Washington area on the east coast of the United States. And uh, William Rush Dunton, one of the founders of occupational therapy, was still alive. And, uh, and so he, because he was interested in history, he... Um, had, you know, established a relationship with Dr. Dunton and, um, uh, you know, talked with him endlessly about Dunton's experiences uh, in working with Eleanor Clark Slagle and starting, you know, occupational therapy uh, in the United, organized occupational therapy in the United States and having been at the founders meeting and all of those really fascinating experiences that Dunton had. Yeah. And so Dr. Bing and he did his dissertation on the history um, and the life of Dr. Dunton, which he had gathered on a firsthand basis. Dr. Dunton needed some, he was getting on in age and um, he needed some, somebody to serve as a, as a kind of an assistant, as a, as a caretaker in his home. And, and so um, Dr. Bing was able to kind of, make some money to help with this, you know, tuition and fees, but at the same time, um, gather some really compelling firsthand, you know, um, historical information about Dr. Dunton. And, you know, now as I, as I look back on the opportunity that I had to, um, you know, to to ask more questions of, of Dr. <laughs> Bing, and I wasn't interested in doing it, so I sort of squandered that opportunity, and uh, and I, I I I certainly regret that very much. <clears throat> it's there's it seems to be a couple. Uh, well, we know Grant Mitchell, who's a mutual friend, who's yes, very yes. very interested in history, uh, and I know that there's a there's another page on Facebook or a group. Um, that's, and I don't know who runs it. Uh, I have a feeling it's an OT from India or somewhere like that, who seems to like find the most amazing, like historical photos from all over the world, like looking at the history of the profession from all over the world. Um, but it seems even now I know, I know Grant kind of takes the, the frame of trying to learn from it. Um, but a lot of the historical posts that I see around are more just like, Oh, look where we've come from as opposed to, um, you know, learning from how people came up with those sort of theories within the, the context of the health landscape back then kind of thing and seeing mm -hmm. sort of, I guess what lessons can be pulled from where we've been to, you know, I guess, help or advance where we are now. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's, do you think that that's a, a possible or I would think a better use of looking at our, our history as a profession would be to try and find some lessons there to advance us 
further now? Well, you know, I think that's an intriguing question. Um, uh, you, you know, part of my interest in, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, some of the details of the personalities are, are quite fascinating in their own right. Mm. And, um, you know, there are several people that I've had the, you know, the good fortune and, and, and pleasure of interacting with over the years who have shared, you know, my growing enthusiasm for, um, for history. And, you know, one in the United States who um, has been particularly, uh, I think, influential is, uh, you know, Kitty Reed and uh, Kathleen Reed. And um, <clears throat> she is uh, so interested in history that she actually went back when she, after, you know, she had been teaching in occupational therapy for quite some time. And she... Um, uh, went back to get a library science degree so she could, um, you know, she, she could, you know, navigate through, Find um, it more. you know, Find it the volumes and this, the, you know, the, the search engines and so on and so forth. Hmm. And Kitty's, Kitty, Kitty is quite remarkable and, you know, has recently, you know, published a, a well-regarded history of, of, of occupational therapy in, in the United States and, so Kitty and I talk from time to time, and, and Kitty has been just relentless in finding um, primary source material on different personalities. And uh, at the recent um, uh, Society for the Study of Occupation meeting in the U.S., she gave an intriguing presentation on Eleanor Clark Slagle and what kind of personality she was. and a little bit of insight into uh, some of the myths surrounding the woman mm -hmm. and her own life and so forth. And, and, you know, as I've sort of looked at the trajectory of occupational therapy and then sort of realized that, um, um, you know, that, that it's initial formation uh, in Clifton Springs, New York, um, you know, was motivated by, um, you know, essentially uh, someone who had benefited from what was known at the time as the work cure. <clears throat> and um, so he was just passionate on tracking down people that kind of shared his point of view and, and was able to, I mean, if you really think about it, if you, if you think about those times and how communication you know, there's no emailing of people. There was no looking, you know, at the internet to, to find out. Yeah, yeah. Know. So you just simply had to use, you know, the, um, the you know, the sources of the time, which were newspapers, you know, in, 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 in cities and towns, which were ubiquitous. And, and then correspondence. And so there was lots of, um, you know, letters being exchanged and books being written. And, you know, people were, there was no tally, you know, there was no <clears throat> way of getting information other than through, you know, the, the printed or the, or the written word. Yeah, yeah. And so if you think about this man single-handedly, you know, George Barton, um, 
who was a convalescent um, and happened to be in Clifton Springs because it, it was a, a sanitarium that, where he had been sent to recover using the water and rest cures. I mean, those were the, I mean, that's the, that was the state of medicine. You had the water cure, the rest cure, and you had the work cure, which is sort of an emerging form of therapy Yep. because most of the modern pharmaceuticals hadn't really been invented yet. And, uh, and so if you think about this guy um, and how voraciously he scoured um, bookstores and, and, and newspapers and so on and so forth to identify people that were like-minded and then and how somehow convinced them through corresponding individually with each of them to come to Clifton Springs, you know, jump on a, on a train, travel several hours to a place they'd most of them had never been to spend a couple of days starting a society. I mean, you can only imagine the, the, the intense labor of love that that represented. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy, um, was very suspicious of organized medicine and um, didn't really want um, Dr. Dunton to be a participant in that. And he wanted to basically control it. And so he got these, and these, these figures who were, had, you know, established uh, reputations of their own. I mean, he had to imagine that they weren't going to, that they were going to be powerful personalities and, and they, and they each were in their own right. And so when he couldn't really control everything, uh, you know, he, he had it all really sort of orchestrated so that, um, you know, he had drawn up the papers for incorporating the society and, um, you know, he had hired a photographer to have a, you know, uh, you know, to get a portrait. And I mean, all of these things he had thought it through very, very carefully. Yeah. And he was, a, you know, I suppose in retrospect, one could kind of, con, you know, consider him a, a control freak. <clears throat> so he got himself elected as the first president, but he couldn't get his way on the first meeting because he wanted to have the first meeting of the society, annual meeting of the society in, I think he wanted to have it in Clifton Springs. And, um, and they were thinking that maybe New York or some larger city might be a better a better location and so on that basis because he couldn't get his way and for other reasons he just resigned you know he so the guy that got everybody together in the first place uh ended up sort of disappearing um and um he you know he started his own convalescent center in clifton springs but he didn't really want to have anything to do with this group anymore and so then the powerful you know, personalities that were, had, had gathered and, and some of, of whom had met for the first time then took off and, and did things on their own. So, you know, personalities like Eleanor Clark Slagle and, um, you know, William Rush Dunton. I mean, these, you know, the, the force of their personalities were, were such that they just basically took the idea and ran with it. And so from my way of looking at it, I mean, it's, I'm intrigued by, how ideas start and then how they take hold and how they gather momentum. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, they, it doesn't happen by chance. It happens because by force of will, it happens by personalities and people who are willing not to just have the idea, but to act on it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it, it was quite, um, serendipitous in my view 
that about three weeks after that initial organizational meeting um, of this group in Clifton Springs, New York, the United States, which had been steadfastly neutral in World War One, uh, decided to enter the enter the war. And um, you know, in the, in, nowadays, if you know, if you declare war, I mean, the the battles begin within minutes. In that era, if you declare war, uh, then you 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 take a year to prepare. Um, you know, building your army, which is exactly what happened in the United States, and making your plans for how you're going to take care of your soldiers. Yeah. And that was first for, you know, because of the war and because they were quite concerned about the casualties that they had, you know, the war had already been going on for two or three years at that point anyway, and they were aware of the casualties. And so they were quite concerned about the casualties that would come back from from sending, a, you know, what they called the American Expeditionary Force <clears throat> over to to Europe, and and so, you know, the United States was hardly even in in the war for even a year before it was over, and um, and the Yanks were, you know, kind of given credit for turning the tide. And the truth of the matter is, the the war of attrition had weakened both sides so much that if you put your finger on the scale, even just a little bit, you could really turn the tide. And um, so it was really less having to do with the skill and the, the genius of, uh, the, the, you know, America's entry into the war and their, and their great military um, that made the difference. It was more about timing. But that timing was really critical for occupational therapy because the decision had been taken that reconstruction aids would be would be part of the uh, the medical support effort, and yeah. that gave that gave the profession you know the legitimacy and the and the springboard that that it needed to really take root. So who knows what would have happened had um, the United States not entered that war and um, and reconstruction aid and a decision not being taken to to include reconstruction aids as part of the as part of the medical effort. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's always fascinated me about any of that is if you change any small thing like what would like even the fact that if old mate had got the meeting where he wanted to have that meeting like would the profession be different? Cuz that was you, you know, know the absolute I guess the ground zero for for OT in the like if you change any kind of any little tiny detail, how is that going to change where we end up? Do we end up? You Do never, we exist? Who knows? You never know what's going to be a catalyst, and and you know Malcolm Gladwell has um, you know his his um his his book called The Tipping Point, which sort of explains how sometimes those little factors like trim tabs, <clears throat> you know on the rudders of ships can make a huge difference. Little things can, you know, I mean, the, the butterfly effect, I mean, there are lots of analogies yeah, yeah. that can be used, but um, yeah, you never know, you know, um, that's why it's important to show up um, because you never know what's going to happen. <clears throat> you, and I know you probably don't like admitting it, but have probably been one of those people that have had a massive influence on 
the profession as well. In fact, I actually have a website here naming you as one of the 100 influential people of OT. And I believe it was through, was that OTA? Yes. Yeah. Is that sort of that real, um, I guess, at, at its kind of roots theory of just showing up and doing what needs doing? Is that sort of, I guess, how you, you think you got to that level of influence, I guess? Well, um, you know, I'm a great believer in humility and, um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I believe that if we start, you know, as soon as we start believing some of the nice things that people are saying about us and, you know, we're, we're, we're probably going to get ourselves in trouble. <clears throat> and so don't look, you know, I think with, with all things, maybe don't look too closely at, um, you know, at the real story, uh, because, you know, it, it might differ from what the conclusion is, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I, I take pride in, in, in um, having, you know, participated, I suppose, is the, is the most important thing. And, and as I looked at that list, yes, yes, all of those people that AOTA named, um, you know, they, they've had influence in different ways, uh, some more than others. Um, you know, all those documents, I think, end up being a little bit political. Um, and... Um, and I, my issue with that particular list um, by AOTA, and it happened, you know, in conjunction with the centennial celebration of the of the profession, mm. and that's why they ended up choosing a hundred influential people. But um, you know, I think there are others. There are certainly others that could be on that list, and 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 particularly others outside the United States. So I mean, I have you know, been influenced by a number of international therapists and who have had influence on occupational therapy in a global sense. And I think each of those uh, local influences needs to be, you know, recognized for what they have done in their own, you know, communities in their own countries and so on and so forth. And yeah, yeah, um, for sure. so each, each country could have its own, its own list of a hundred influential um, well, certainly not countries where there aren't even a hundred occupational yeah. <laughs> therapists that are there yet. But um, but my point is, of course, that you know influence um, can be defined in lots of different ways, and uh, there are many there are many you know master clinicians, therapists who, um, as Malcolm Gladwell would would say, are opinion leaders who whose advice is often sought. They don't seek the line, limelight. They may not publish, but they're respected as, um, as authorities from their experience and wisdom. And, and they, you know, they mentor other therapists and, and uh, have an influence that's very positive. And I think these are, I guess you could call them the unsung heroes of occupational therapy, the ones that... Um, you know, they get up every day, they're, they have a passion for what they do, they go in and they, they do the best by their, you know, their patients and clients and, and, um, and they learn and try and apply, you know, what they've learned every day um, and, um, and they influence others, you know, by their example. And, and that, I think, is, um, 
those are the kinds of, of, of positive influences in occupational therapy that I think we, we often overlook and, and, mm. and should probably pay more attention to. Yeah, and I think a lot of times those sort of people, they might be you know, in your local health service. They don't necessarily have to be you know, the head of any sort of national association or anything like that. They can be you know, people that have had a positive influence on you as an individual. Like I'm usually quite open with, though, like I know I've said a thousand times, so Anita Hamilton, who is also a mutual friend of ours, has had mm-hmm. probably more influence over me and my career path and what I've done within the profession of anyone. And, you know, she's super humble about it and I just keep telling her and making her blush because it's fun for me to do that. But, um, yeah, I think the, the influence, I think, yeah, you're right. It can be defined as, as many different things and it's going to be, there's, probably, there's people on that list I've never heard of so I don't know if they've had any influence on me. But um, yeah, it's 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 a nice feather in your cap. I can definitely understand why you are on that list. I went and actually tried to find a, a list of your publications yesterday earlier, uh, and you are a very prolific public publisher. There was I found our list, and there was, it was uh of all sorts of textbooks and research articles and um you know co-authored articles and textbook chapters and you name it there's a good chance you've you've written <laughs> in it or about it or on it or uh is there any sort of topics or or bodies of work that you have published about that you're particularly proud of or particularly um feel strongly about out of all of the stuff that you have put mm, out? Mm, that's a good question. <clears throat> well, um, I'll have to say that, um, you know, my collaboration with uh, Liz Townsend um, on the um, introduction to, you know, occupation book that um, that was, you know, ended up being m- much more well-received outside the United States than inside. Um, I have a copy in my not, office. I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, and thank you for that. I think that, that you know, I hang on to that copy. It's going to be a collector's item someday because I think there are only four or five and still in existence. But Because um, <laughs> uh, there weren't very many more uh, than that sold as I... As I <laughs> As best I can, in as best I can ter- determine. But that was um, that was intriguing because um, not only uh, did it give me an opportunity to work, um, you know, with with Liz and to get her um, fantastic, uh, you know, mind to, and, and perspectives, which you know we're. we're were similar but different than than my own, and it was really expanding. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity to, you know, to see different points of view. I remember when when she was first telling me about her collaboration with Ann Wilcock and and in doing the in in um, the whole concept of occupational justice, mm. and um, I just couldn't get my mind around you know around that idea I, I i kept going back to social justice and i said so 
you really think this idea is going to gain any traction? I mean, it's just really a specific application of social justice, isn't it? And, you know, so we'd go back and forth about it. And, and I was being sort of devil's advocate, but I truly, you know, it took me a long time before I really kind of put the pieces together mm. and, and recognized that they were, that they were onto something um, pretty, really vital from the standpoint of, of how central, um, you know, the opportunity and access to meaningful, engaging occupation is for health and well-being, and and you can tie it to a lot of areas of psychology and and so on and so forth, but um, and health. But you you can't deny that um, that they that the, the, the way they sort of thought it through and looked at it from the standpoint of its social implications, um, whether you're talking about people who are incarcerated or who are refugees or, you know, taking some of the concepts that, um, that, uh, Gail, uh, you know, Whiteford, um, happened to, um, you know, do such a great job of, of advancing. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, all of those, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it really, um, it made me, it convinced me more than, more than anything else that, 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 that sort of understanding these concepts and, and appreciating the, their breadth and their, and their huge societal, even global implications were, you know, I was, it was, it was one of those concepts that, you know, is, um, almost uh, impossible to um, estimate how, you know, to, or, or certainly appreciate how significant it, it was and, you know, focusing attention on, on, and it was the first time that I ever really appreciated this notion that, that occupational therapists would be, um, would bother themselves with social activism. I always, mm, you know, yeah, it's yeah. very traditional in the sense that, um, I thought, well, you know, our role really isn't in, is, is not in social change in politics. That's for, you know, other people to do, you know, we, we our concerns are, are more at the individual level. And, and, um, so, you know, being able to sort of take the concept of occupational therapy that as I knew it, which was, you know, therapist to, Patient, to thinking about the application of these concepts to groups and to populations, and um, you know, it, it takes a bit of the of stretching of the of the mind, but not too much. Hmm. To look at these things on a broader scale, and, and in terms of their scope and, and their potential influence. So, um, yeah, I mean, so I'm. I'm I learned a lot, and and I'm I'm proud of the the work that um, Liz and I did with that because it was I think it, it really it helped me um, sort of expand my thinking a great deal. And then of course, um, you know, the work that I did in sort of appreciating, um, you know, identity, um, and so how people use occupations to 
define themselves and how important identity is. And, you know, you don't have to look very far, mm. um, you know, to appreciate that um, it's ubiquitous, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, um, tattoos and piercings and, I mean, the, the, you know, the, the whole emphasis on individuality and um, uh, and and realizing and being comfortable in our own skin and, and, and how we enact that, you know, through the things that we do. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think sort of appreciating that and, and writing about identity was also really mind expanding for me. And, and um, so that's been, you know, it's been fun to, to kind of explore some of those concepts as well. Yeah, because that that have I, that your the introduction to occupation textbook. Uh, so for the last couple of years, I've taught our first years, like essentially their very first OT related subject um, of the course, and that was the the textbook for the course up until I think last year when it went out of print. So yeah, I, I've read it a thousand times. I think I've probably got more than one copy in my office. Uh, mm. So next time, if you're if you're out, I'll get you to sign it. Well, I'm <laughs> happy to do that. And incidentally, there were I was actually quite surprised when when um, Prentice Hall made the decision that it didn't it wasn't selling well enough to make it worth their while to do a third edition. Liz and I were kind of grappling with. Yeah. Um, you know, what to do about that. And, um, ultimately, um, we weren't able to, you know, to recruit some people that might want to, you know, kind of take that and run with it. But, um, I did compile, a, you know, was able to compile a PDF because she and I got the rights, you know, back from, from Prentice Hall. And, um, and so we own, you know, the, the copyright and are in possession of it. So we're able to distribute that, you know, mm. the PDF version, um, to anybody who wants it. So, um, you know, that's, I'm quite happy to, you know, to share that. And, um, and, and most, a lot of students are, are basically accessing most of their information online anyway. So, you know, even though it's not formatted in a way that makes it, um, you know, easy to search. Mm. Um, it, it still is accessible and available to anybody who um, you know wants to get a hold of a copy. <clears throat> well, yeah, if you if you set it up, you could easily set it up on a link, or you could sell it, or whatever you mm. want to do, and it would yeah. be easily distributable. Nowadays, it's that kind of thing. I mean, like this podcast is a perfect example. You can get information out to people really really easily with the the technology that we have nowadays so mm -hmm. yeah no nah, that'd be that'd be pretty cool and you're yeah, anybody oh sorry anybody who wants to contact me you know through social media um or send me an email or whatever get a message to me yeah um and that wants you know to um to, you know to get a copy of that um in in pdf format I'm happy to to send that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I'll uh, I'll put a link to your your email address or your your various social accounts because you are okay. you are out there on there probably more than some people. It's good to <laughs> good to see. 
Not as much as I used to be, no. um, <laughs> you know, but, um, but, um, but I, I try and check in from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> and your, the, the work around meaning, that was something that you presented in your Slagle lecture, I believe. Because that's something I've been sort of toying with my myself is I think just looking at how it's taught in our course with regards to, you know, the traditional taxonomy of roles and <laughs> occupations, activities, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I think for the last few years anyway, my observation is that the the students seem to be, have the hardest time getting their head around the roles aspect of it, which... I think, and one of the things I was looking at trying to have a look at to address that is incorporating more of the like identity. So they've actually got something that they can, you know, something they probably already can recognize that they can sort of, I guess, attach to that new concept to, to help them learn it. Is, it. is that kind of your your take on the whole identity thing? Is it closely tied to roles or is it different? Is it a separate thing? Well, you know, I, I think that's that's fascinating. You know, I'm, I'm un, I once made um, a comment about how occupational therapists didn't really have very much um, uh, respect for existing definitions. So, you know, um, and and I I I picked on the the idea of role as an example. I mean, there were probably fifteen different definitions of role that were found in the occupational therapy literature. Some of of course were, you know, um, you know, modifications of of existing you know, definitions from the psychological and the sociological literature. So and I was, was quite amused that, you know, we, we would take concepts that had been well-established in other disciplines and feel quite free to, you know, just mold them and, and redefine them for our own purposes. And I'm, I have a, a much higher level of, of comfort with that now than I, I did back in the day when I was a, a little bit more traditional and, and, and conservative. And, um, and perhaps less daring. I don't know, um, but um, but you know, I, if you really consider the whole issue of role, particularly around, you know, I'll just use the example of gender. You know, I, I when we were earlier in this conversation, you know, I was talking about how my um, alarm, my sense of alarm, as a student finding out that um, you know I was in a profession that was predominated by women. And in that day and age, you know, there was so much, um, there was so little, you know, uh, I think, um, appreciation for, you know, the um, limitations of associating, you know, particular vocations and, and, and roles with, with gender identity. And, of course, now with the transgender um, phenomena, and um, and and a whole lot of other, I think, um, pretty significant changes in the way global societies kind of view the roles of men and women and so forth. I, I think um, all of those old, really socially defined um, notions, 
you know, are in a state of, um, they're in a more dynamic state and, 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 and kind of being redefined almost, um, it seems, you know, by the week, if not the day. Mm. So, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that would make a really fascinating, it probably has already been written. I, you know, there's so much, there's so much being published. It's impossible to kind of keep up with it these days. Yeah. Uh, and, and so much of interest, um, you know, so you're, I find myself, you know, um, seeing something on the internet and seeing a new paper or whatever. And, and, and it, uh, you know, the, the, the facility, the ease with which you can kind of go from, from one paper to a paper that's been cited, you know, within that paper. I mean, you, it's, it's like going down a rabbit hole. I mean, it's, um, and, you know, before you know it, half of your day is gone because you, you've been, you know, just gorging yourself trial, yeah. on all this information. And, you know, so it takes an immense amount of self-discipline, you know, to kind of keep that from, to keep your day from getting hijacked by, you know, the, the ease of access to, to information. Um, so, you know, I mean, I don't even profess to know what, what the latest is about what people are saying about rules. Um, I would imagine that there's, uh, that there, the whole idea is, um, is in, in a state of flux. I would have to say though, that, um, <clears throat> you know, like so many things, um, at the end of the day, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, we take, we, we, we hold concepts and we understand concepts um, through, uh, you know, a process of, of, of constant reconstruction and, 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 and consensus, societal consensus. So, you know, we agree on definitions and rule and, and rules and ways of, of behaving and comporting ourselves based upon what society accepts or rejects. And if you go back to the notion that um, one of the most powerful motivators is social acceptance, and that's mm -hmm. precisely because you know humans are group living animals and we depend on each other for our survival. And we don't want to be outliers because outliers are the animals in the herd that get, you know, that are the first to be attacked by, by you know, by their... Um, <clears throat> Predatism. Exactly. Yeah. You know, they're, you know they're, they're natural enemies. So um, there's no question in my mind that social approval is a huge and powerful motivator of, of human behavior. And, uh, and so, you know, society determines, you know, where it's going to draw the line in the sand kind of, kind of collectively. And I have the sense that, you know, those lines in the sand are maybe that line in the sand is a very apt metaphor because when the winds blow, you know, those lines get erased and they get changed. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the question is, you know, does society come to its agreement on, certain conventions and, and certain rules of the road in a way that is is um driven by reason um and to a certain extent i suppose populism um or is it simply 
you know, one group forcing its will upon the other. And I think there's a constant tension uh, that exists in, 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 you know, even at the global as well as uh, national and, and societal level, you know, or, or local levels that, that is, is in play. That's constantly, you know, redefining, um, you know, what's acceptable and not acceptable from the standpoint of the group. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that I find, I mean, that, that social dynamic is, is, is quite interesting. And to the extent that it is in turmoil and upheaval, which I think it is at the moment, um, you know, that has consequences that, that flow, you know, to groups and to individuals. And, um, you know, we, we need a certain amount of predictability in our lives, I think, to, um, you know, to, to, to uh, give us a sense of safety and security and, and, um, and, and calm that's necessary to live, you know, a, a, a peaceful, tranquil, you know, satisfactory existence. Yeah, to yeah, the extent sure. that that's disrupted, I think we, you know, our, our activation, you know, our nervous system activation is such that, you know, that, that, that's harmful. It's known to be harmful, you know, over time, hmm. you know, to our health. And so I worry a little bit about what, what, the, what the health consequences are of, of political and social turmoil. Um, and then when you add that, the overlay of um, climate change and, and the very real consequences of, you know, fires that are destroying California or yeah. weather changes that are creating, you know, huge floods and destroying communities or, you know, incredible storms that are more and more destructive. You get really disruptive effects that, that, that you have to wonder, you know, how are we going to mobilize and, and um, organize, uh, you know, to kind of reduce the effects of those. And, um, and, and how do we, you know, develop some sense of reason to maintain, you know, the peace and tranquility that um, is really necessary for us to flourish. Um, you know, those are, those, those are geopolitical, you know, questions that I think are, have immense consequences in the future and, um, and ones that, that I take really, really seriously. Yeah. And I think that, that's, uh, though those kinds of topics are things that I've seen crop up recently, probably in the last four years, more at conferences and that kind of thing. So. Uh, especially, you know, the political landscape stuff and even the climate change stuff and the impact it has on the profession. And um, it, it's a discussion that I've seen start, at least. So that's mm-hmm. something that we're not, for once, being completely reactive to after it's happened kind of thing. We're trying to get our heads around it, I, I feel, anyway, uh, at the conferences that I've been to, trying to get our heads around it either as it's happening or you know, before it sort of hits that critical point of no return kind of thing. So I think that's that's a positive for the profession, but I think you're right. Like there's a lot of the things even uh, like you highlighted before, like the the impacts on health that aren't just the obvious ones like fires and weather. Like what is the – 
the stress and the anxiety and the the upheaval and the uncertainty and like what are the the impacts that they're having on people's mental well-being and that kind of thing so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think it's much more complex than just the the basic sort of politics or or, or weather and 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 relates i think to a very another concept that i've been interested in over over the years the the whole notion of balance mm. You know, so how do we, you know, organize our lives in a way where, you know, we are, um, to lack, you know, for lack of a better term, inoculating ourselves from the, you know, the stre- the concept, the physiological consequences of, of the stress that we're that we're that we're dealing with. So, you know, in my mind, that really makes it all the more imperative that we think about lifestyles and we think about how we can protect ourselves. And some of the things that we can deliberately and intentionally do in um, in sort of taking ourselves away from the ubiquity of the of the internet and social media, you know, turn our phones off and um, you know, take a walk in the park, go hiking. In my case, um, you know, I I love poetry. I love to read and, and write poetry. I find that that the tranquility of that, um, you know, quite calming. Um, and you know, uh, I, I have the advantage of having the time now, you know, to be able to be a little bit selective about how I, you know, how I apportion my, you know, the time that I have and, and I'm able to, you know, take time to walk the dog and enjoy the nature and, and do all those things that, that are that are enjoyable and uh, relaxing and um, and at the same time you know good for me yeah yeah and and so having an understanding of how of the characteristics of different occupations and how those can be structured and, and organized you know to um, influence lifestyles I think is a really really important um area for occupational therapy to explore and one of the reasons why i've been so fascinated with the whole idea of of occupational balance over the years yeah. and you know and 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 credit that to adolf meyer yeah who um you know really introduced that uh, that idea and then the kind of the, the the habit patterns as he described them that were more conducive to um to healthful living. And this was before even the concept of of stress, as as Hensellier, you know, defined it. Yeah, um, was even known. I mean, this uh, it's just a pity, you know. As I, I think back historically, um, it's a pity that Adolf Meyer was so opaque in um, in his in his ability to communicate, and, um, and of course, English was not his first language. Mm. Uh, but even but he even thought in in a in a at a level of complexity that made it really really difficult for him to convey, you know, the meaning of his concepts to other people, <laughs> and um, <clears throat> and he had a really thick German accent uh, that made it difficult. And so if you take the complexity and you take his accent and you combine them. It's no wonder that even though he had wonderful ideas, they were really difficult. People didn't really want to take the time to actually sift through them and translate them into concepts that they can understand. And, and that's a real pity because I think he was he was way ahead of his time. Yeah, miles. And I've read some, <laughs> some of his stuff from I think there's an exactly. AOTA archive, and 
there's a couple of his his published works in there and um you could publish that today and it would hold relevance like it's like he was and that, that i think the one i remember reading was like 1922 or something like he was that mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. ahead of his time uh with regards to where he saw the profession's place in healthcare and that kind of stuff and like mm-hmm. yeah it was, and he's actually that's a that's actually a really good segue him uh, into uh, one last thing that I'd really like to get your your opinion on is there's been a a push in Australia anyway because it it sort of came up at the last national conference a couple of months ago around do we need to continue with the classification of occupations or is having an in depth knowledge of uh, occupations and engagement and that enough for clinical practice so by classifications they're looking at the you know productivity leisure rest that kind of thing do do those classifications still serve a purpose and i'd love to get your opinion of it because i've there's uh, karen wiley hamill's published some stuff on it um and then there's a few others that are published and then at the national conference in sydney here in july they actually set up a debate uh, with uh, with a few academics, um, sort of, I guess, arguing the pros and cons of of uh, one getting rid of them, or are they needed? Uh, and two, uh, and the other, and obviously the opposite. So, oh, yeah, I was just curious as to your your take on that that sort of uh, modern push with regards to how we learn occupations and or about occupations and how we frame them, etc. Well, that's an intriguing question. You know, at first blush, I think I would. And I remember writing a paper, actually, one time on classification and occupation. And um, on the one hand, you know, I mean, we were talking about Adolf Meyer and um, in his, you know, habits where he segmented, you know, work, you know, rest, sleep, whatever. And the sort of, you know, the the big four, the traditional big four that we've, you know, that we have used as, as kind of our own kind of folk taxonomy mm. in occupational therapy. And I, I think it's really worthy of study. You know, if you go back to some of uh, Joan Rogers' writing, she was an advocate at one point for actually having a taxonomy that will allow us to actually have categories of occupational um, dysfunction. And, um, you know, so she wanted to really be able to sort of have a DSM for occupational therapy, right? So you could have, um, you know, diagnostic categories of and who knows what that would look like? I think the problem with with those um, those systems is that if if they are if we begin to worship them as the last word, then they become problematic because I think it 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 inhibits our thinking. On the other hand, we just can't. I mean, it's sort of like organizing the kitchen. You know, I'm a one of the things I enjoy doing is is cooking and and. Um, and I, and I really realize that uh, and, and appreciate that even though it's not my natural inclination, mm. 
you know, to, um, to organize my kitchen in a way, my kitchen, you know, cupboards in a way where, um, you know, they, they have the precision of a, of a Dewey decimal system or something like that. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, a, by nature, a, a very, a compulsive, um, uh, how shall I say, cook. Um, but I do appreciate that it's it's useful, you know, to have some organization so that we, you know, we have some agreement on what we're talking about and, and where we're going to go to, you know, to, to find some agreement uh, about that concept. I mean, it's like definitions in a way. Yeah, yeah. Because the definitions are, are, are sort of the basis for how we would we would we would classify. But if 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 we 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 have those organizational systems um, in um, you know within dotted lines, so that we recognize that everything's provisional. At least it gives us a way to be more efficient in our communication with each other so that we, you know, we're, we're, we're at least talking about the same cupboard and the same kind of ingredient when we're having a discussion about it. I mean, mm-hmm. we need those conventions just because of the practicalities and, and the necessities of everyday life. Because, you know, one of the reasons why we have habits, as we all know, is because in our automatic, um, behaviors that we're not even or that we're not even aware of consciously necessarily um is because it saves energy you know it conserves energy for us to um to focus our attention on on other matters that might be more pressing at the time so i think in in a way you know you can extrapolate that idea uh, to a you know to group and societal levels and say you know we need we need some conventions we need some some agreement agreements even if they're provisional about how we're going to describe and classify things, but recognizing that as we learn more about them, they might be, you know, reclassified, and um, you know, we'll learn, we'll learn new things if we if we're not quite too dogmatic, you know, about you know the cupboards that we're placing ideas into. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of my 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 notion about that. We do need we do need we do need to have some. I think level of agreement about so is there a distinction between play and leisure for example yeah. or what is work and we all know that work is being redefined almost by the minute in terms of how it's how it's engaged in yeah how it's engaged and and um and a whole host of, of things that go along with that how you know i mean even the hierarchies you know of of large organizations, you know, have changed so that, you know, rather than, you know, so people are working in teams now and those teams are, you know, may focus on areas of expertise, but they're, you know, they're flexible, they're malleable, they change over time. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah that's awesome. And I hadn't thought of it from, I guess, from that point of view of, uh, giving us or using it essentially as a, a a way of you know communicating with each other and that sort of shared language um that was something that didn't hadn't come up in the in the debate either which is which is interesting so 
Thank you very much for that. Well, there's a there's a group of of um, of people out there <clears throat> who um, I guess they call their movement um, um, critical theory. <coughs> Excuse me. And the idea is, you know, to to resist the pitfalls of dogma, and um, you know, you mentioned Karen, and you know, I have all I have always admired her work because she's had the she's had the courage, you know, to question existing dogma. Yeah time and again and you know i think it's really really important for us to have a mirror held up to us as a discipline and say you know are we being um critical enough are we are we examining our own assumptions and our own dogmas sufficiently to you know to admit to ourselves that there's the possibility that we might be wrong Hmm. that there might be some alternatives that we can that are actually better solutions than the ones we've landed on. And, you know, as I, as I look back on my own career and my own habits of thought, you know, I think one of the things that, that I've, I've landed on as, um, as a, as you know, what would I do differently if I were to do it all over again? And one would be, so when I'm looking for a solution, to a problem or an answer to a question. You know, I think our tendency is to, you know, when as, as though we're looking for a lost object. Once we find it, we don't continue looking. Yep. Why would we, right? Yeah. But I think in, in the area of ideas, <clears throat> once we get a once we think that we have an answer to a question, we may, that may very well be an answer, but I think we need to always be mindful that that might not be the only answer. And that if we continue to challenge ourselves and we can find other answers that might be better than the ones that we've already gotten. And I think that's, that's one of the things that I, that I would change about the, my approach to, you know, to problem solving. Nice. Nice. And I think that's, that's something that I, I also, uh, yeah, I agree. I think that's something that's super important for, for all clinicians to, to take in. I think it's a great message uh, for people to, if they take nothing out of this conversation other than that, then that'll be that'll be a win in itself. So, um, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Um, I'm very wary that I've taken up so much of your time, and uh, I I can't thank you enough for 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 having a chat. Oh, hello, dog. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's my pleasure, Brock, and um, and I must say, I I admire the work that you're doing, and. Um, it's really great. I mean, as you know, I, I love Australia and, um, and I cherish the friendships that I've um, developed there. 
<clears throat> and so I do appreciate that, um, you know, you know, the youth, um, modified your you know, schedule to, um, to arrange these conversations and, and over distances. And, and uh, I appreciate that very much. So thanks for, for sharing your talents with the rest of us. 